0: And Father, we thank you for that reminder of your providential care and guiding in our lives. We thank you that we can trust whatever your hand ordains is right. As we dive into your word now, Father, would you guide us, would you help us, would you instruct our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you take your Bibles and turn in them to Genesis chapter 38, this is an ongoing part of the story of uh, Joseph and uh, the bigger story of his father Jacob for after all as we are diving into this series on Joseph what we are realizing that it really is a story about the generations of Jacob as Genesis 37 2 tells us and so we're beginning to realize though that Joseph dominates the verbal landscape of uh, basically chapter 37 to chapter 50 but it's not only his story it's the story of his father but even that, it's not his father's story. It's a bigger story. It's the story of Abraham. And it's not even that. It's not just the story of Abraham. It's an even greater story of God's redemptive plan and of God's family. And so, as we come to these chapters and we look at the life of Joseph, what we're reminded of is God's covenant or promise-keeping dealings with his people, and in particular, his singular promise to Abraham. In chapter 15, we find that promise to Abraham, which this is an outworking of God's keeping that promise, where the Lord says to Abraham, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it as righteousness. And so this is part of the outworking of God's promise to give Abraham an a numberless offspring it's also though part of a promise that God said to Abraham in that same chapter 15 where he sells to them he says know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years and so God is about to bring the small offspring of Abraham and bring them into um, servanthood in Egypt where they will be a total of 400 years from the time of the promise to the time they leave Egypt. And so God is working out his promises. And so when we come to chapter 38, it's a bizarre chapter. I, I think maybe that's too strong a word, but it's a unique chapter. And many people look at chapter 38 of Genesis and see it only as an intrusion into the Bible, it, has, it makes no sense to the bigger picture of the story. But again, remember that we are dealing with the generations of Jacob. We're dealing with his children and what God is doing in the family of Jacob. And so what God is doing in Joseph's life, he's also working in the other brothers. And particularly, this is the story about what God is doing in Jacob's son, Judah. The portrait that has been painted of this family is not a good portrait, It's not the one that most of us would hang on the wall in our homes. It's one that shows Jacob's family is unraveling. His family is disintegrating before his eyes. It's a troubled household. And we wonder, how can God bring anything good out of this family? His boys have been spiraling into deeper and deeper trouble. Two of his old sons, Levi and Simeon, had slaughtered a village. His oldest son had slept with one of his wives. His ten boys were full of hatred and jealousy towards his second youngest son, Joseph. Their hatred had been so severe that they had murderous intentions on him. And it was only Judah's let's sell him into slavery that saved the day. And then, of course, there was the big lie, the huge deception, as they took Joseph's coat and rolled it in goat's blood and sent it back to their father and say see he has been eaten by a wild animal and then unknown to joseph was the reality that or jacob was the reality that joseph was on his way down to egypt some of you can identify with a family like this right under your noses it seems that your family is falling apart or has fallen apart it's come undone and it may seem that God is thousands of miles away as you look at what has taken place, the last thing that you ever thought would happen. This is an account which reminds us that God does not give up on us, that God does not let go of us, that God does not abandon his purposes for us. And it's again a reminder of the providence of God as he works through the brokenness of our lives and of our families to bring about his purposes and his glory. As we've been looking at these chapters, we have been looking at them through the grid of providence, and I'm going to explain that again just to keep it in our heads. But we've been looking at it through the providence and demonstrating how it gives insight to the single uh, sentence in Romans 8.28 where it says there, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And so as we've been wrestling with this, I'm finding that for some of us, this notion of providence is brand new. We've, we've never wrestled with it before. We've never thought about it. For others of us, we've been forced to think about it in ways that we've never thought about it before, and we've all of a sudden got questions that are, are exploding out of our heads. Well, if that's true, then what about this, and what about that? And so just as the story of Joseph is a larger part of the bigger story of Jacob, so the doctrine of providence is a larger part of the doctrine of creation. And I want to say that I, I would suggest that if you have trouble with the doctrine of creation, with God speaking this world into existence, then you will have trouble with the doctrine of providence. And the providence of God is this, God's guiding and governing of all events, circumstances, and free acts of mankind and directing of everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. So you say, well, what does God, what right does God have to do that? On what basis can God say, I'm going to direct every event, every circumstance of every life to my goal and for my glory? Who says that he can do such a thing like that? Well, he created it. He created you. He created me. We are his. He made us. This is his world. He made it. These are his heavens. He made everything in it. He made everything on the earth. He made everything in the seas and that swims in them. It is all his and he made it. And therefore, he can do as he pleases with what is his. Now, before you think badly about God when I make that statement, what about you with your stuff? What about the things that you make? What about the things that you acquire? What about the money that you've earned, even though God has given to that? It's your bank account, and you determine who gets it. You determine how much they get. You determine when they get it. You determine if you destroy something. You determine if you sell something. You determine if you buy something. Well, this is God's world, and it's his to do with as he pleases. And so the doctrine of providence flows out of the doctrine of creation, where God has created this world with meaning and purpose, and the degree to which we believe that God has made this world and everything in it is the degree to which we will begin to grasp the doctrine of his providence and his right to guide and direct all things for his purposes and for his glory. One preacher said this, he says, In the beginning, God the Father, through the agency of his eternal Son, created out of nothing, all that is not God by the word of his command. He spoke this world into existence. In fact, that is what Hebrews 11.3 tells us. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that uh, that are visible. God spoke this world into existence. And then he goes on and he says, and moment by moment, He upholds in being all things by that same word of power, so that everything which comes into existence is his peculiar creation. Therefore, God owns all things, has a purpose for all things, and on him all things depend absolutely. As the owner of the world, he has the right to do with it as he pleases, and what pleases him is the fulfillment of his purposes to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory." Therefore, the full-time vocation of all God's creatures should be to glorify him by acknowledging his lordship and by living in complete childlike dependence on his mercy to give us everything that is good for us. Do you see the connection between providence and creation? The providence of God flows out of the fact that God created this world and everything in it. So we find ourselves then in Genesis chapter 38. And what we find going on in this chapter is there's a parallel story being told. We've been following the life of Joseph and we came to the end of chapter uh, 37 and we find that uh, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. When we get to chapter 39, we will pick up Joseph in Egypt. And then Joseph will be in Egypt for 22 years until his family comes down. His brothers meet him again. So that's what God is going to be doing in the life of Joseph. We're going to follow that starting next week. But God is up to something in one of his other brothers' lives. So this is what God is doing in the life of Judah over 22 years. Joseph is in Egypt for 22 years. Judah is in Canaan for 22 years remember this is the generations of Jacob this is what God is doing in the family of Jacob redeeming them bringing them to fulfill his purposes and so when we dive into chapter 38 what we are seeing now is God dealing with one of the sons of Jacob another son we're going to divide the chapter into two sections the first section is in verse 38 and there's time sections it happened at that time what time? the time that joseph was in egypt and then the second one is in verse 12 where it says in the course of time the first 11 verses of chapter 38 cover about 19 years the last verses of chapter 38 cover about a year and so we've got about 20 21 years in the life of judah so i'll read the first 11 verses it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Selah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a rife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his seed on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah sent to Tamar his daughter-in-law, said, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah's on the run. This is a sad tale of a boy who has decided that he is going to leave his family and strike out on his own. There could be a million and one reasons why Judah has left his home. It could have been that he's tired of his family. Sometimes kids get like that, young adults get like that. They, they're just tired of living in the home that they have been raised in. Maybe he was tired of his father's favoritism. It had been part of their lives for so long, and he was just sick and tired of it now, and he saw his father continually mourning, and he needed to get away from his dad. Maybe he was tired of being part of the hatred and jealousy that he and his brothers had had for Joseph. Maybe it was his guilt and he was unable to live with his father's constant grief and the reality of what he had done. And so he says, I just need to leave all of this behind and I need to get out of my father's house and I need to set out on my own. And so you see what the text says. It says, Judah went down from his brothers. He left his family. He went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. It's a couple of comments. Went down. That is a geographical comment. Uh, They were living in Hebron in the hills and the Canaanites were in the valleys below. And so he left his family and he went down to where the Canaanites lived. It's a spiritual move as well it's signifying that he's leaving the faith of his father and he's going to embrace the faith of the Canaanites that live on the plains below. And in this move, he's going to make a couple of really, really bad decisions. The first one is he befriends an Udulamite named Hira. From this point on, Hira will be identified as his friend. And it is clear that Hira has a bad influence on Judah. Because every poor decision that Judah makes, his friend is right there with him. There are few things in our lives that will impact us more than the influence of friends on our lives. And I think of kids as they're getting ready to to leave home and go to university, or as they're heading off to school, or as they're moving out and taking a job in a big city. One of the most important decisions that you will ever make is the friends that you choose. Because your friends will shape and change your lives. We make friends, and then our friends make us. Friendship shapes the very character of who we are. And we choose our friends, and then our friends shape the way that we become. I only want to say one thing about friends, and that's the moral influence of them on the direction of our lives. There's an ancient proverb that says, Whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. It's just wisdom. It's the observation of life that who you choose for life will determine to a large extent the outcome of your life. The writer of Proverbs illustrates it this way. He says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Why? Why not be a friend with somebody who has a temper? Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourselves in a snare. You see, your friends will show your future self to you. They will be what you will become. It's sometimes true that, that, that bad men and women, um, uh, or, or that sometimes uh, friendship makes bad men uh, better and good men worse. And the closer the friend, the stronger the influence. And the influence of friendship is subtle and far less intentional than we sometimes think. We think, oh, they're just my friend and I'm just hanging out with them and it's no big deal, you know. But the reality is, is that like a chameleon that changes colors when it lands on a branch, we become like those that we spend time with. Character is contagious. And that is why we must choose our friends wisely and carefully. And so you find that Judah did not choose his friendships wisely. Second thing, He marries the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite. Right up there next to the friends that you choose and their impact on your life is the spouse that you choose. There are few things that have a greater influence on your life than friends or spouses. And so the first is we look at his decision on a spouse, how he chose her. He saw her and he took her. On the surface, we might say, well, that's really not a big deal. Well, every time those two verbs are combined, or most often when those two verbs are combined, lust is involved in the equation. So we find it with Eve in the garden. She saw the fruit and she took it. We find it with Achan when they were in Jericho and they were commanded not to take any of the goods of the Jerichoites. He saw some gold and he saw a staff and he saw it and he took it. Samson saw a beautiful girl and he took her. So here we have Judah who saw a woman and took her. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that looks should not have a part or an influence in who we choose as a spouse, that physical attraction is not important and doesn't matter. What I am saying is that's not the primary concern or that's not the only basis on which we choose a spouse. But the looks of this Canaanite woman caught his attention. And that's the second issue. It's that she was a Canaanite all through the first chapters of Genesis and now we find the patriarchs very concerned that their sons not marry a Canaanite because they didn't want them to learn their ways. They didn't want them to learn their gods. They didn't want to worship their ways. And one of the things, some of you may be familiar with Dave Ramsey's, uh, he has great advice on a lot of things. He's a Christian guy, um, but he had four things that should be part of any dating relationship of how you choose your spouse. I'm only going to mention one. I think the other four are in the notes, but one of them, he says, is faith. He says that you ought to choose a spouse that shares your faith. It doesn't matter whether it's Christian faith or Buddhism or atheism, but you ought to be on the same page, because if you're not on the same page, there will be tension in that relationship. And so Judah chose a spouse of a different faith. You see how Judah is turning his back on everything that he's known? He's turning his back on his family, He's turning his back on his faith, and he's rushing headlong into friendship with the world and fellowship with an unbeliever. And you begin to see that work itself over time in his home, because we, we see that his children are characterized by disobedience. They're characterized by evil behavior and evil, evil actions. He's not raising his boys with the influence of the God of his grandfather Abraham or the God of his uh, his. his, 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 his or his greatfa- great-grandfather great Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, or his own father Jacob. He's not raising them in the family and uh, the faith of their fathers. Maybe he's leaving that to his wife and the Canaanite religions of which he was familiar with. And by his wife, he has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. He arranged for Er to be married to a girl named Tamar. We know nothing about her. But before they had any children, God killed him because he was evil. We don't know why God killed him. It's the first mention in the Bible of God specifically killing an individual. The two other cases where we find in Genesis of God reacting to such egregious evil is in Genesis chapter 6 and in Genesis chapter 19. But we're not told why he was evil. We're not told what constituted that. All we are told is that he was evil and therefore God killed him. It's a reminder that sin is not to be played with. After all, the wages of sin is what? Death. And our life is in the hands of God. Just a side note on this kind of stuff too. I don't think it's ever our place to try and decide why it is somebody dies. No matter what the circumstances, no matter how they look, it is not our place to decide that. In fact, Judah thought he knew the reason why. He thought his children had died because somehow Tamar was cursed. She wasn't cursed. His sons were evil, and God had taken them. So it is not our place to judge why a person dies or lives. Then he arranged for Onan to marry Tamar in order to produce an offspring for her. This was along the, the, the ancient Near Eastern law of Leverite marriage. And uh, I don't have any time to really go into it all, other than the practice behind it was to maintain the family name through the oldest son. And to make sure that there was an inheritance that was passed on through the oldest son. And so that was why this was practiced. We find it in in Luke chapter 10 where there you have the Sadducees coming before Jesus and mentioning a a, a brother who who died and uh, then he had six other brothers and they all married the wife and then who would be uh, her husband in heaven? So it's a practice that was carried on even into Jesus' days. But Onan also was evil. He wanted the pleasure of marriage, but not the responsibility of marriage. Clearly, he didn't want to see his brother reinstated into the family line. He didn't want his brother to rehate. He didn't want to split the inheritance any longer. He wanted it all for himself. Neither did he have any intention of obeying his father. And he made sure that Tamar would not become uh, uh, pregnant so that she would be supported in her old age. And so he did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. So here you have in this first eleven verses some nineteen years of life, summarized very succinctly by this these relations. And Judah's life was anything but pleasing to God over those nineteen years. He left his family, he lost his sons, he was immersed in pagan culture. There is pain. There is pain in walking away from your family. There is pain from cultivating friendships that bring you harm rather than good. There is pain by entering into marriage relationships when you don't share the same beliefs. And yet in the midst of all of this, God's hand was guiding the life of Judah. And so we see that in verse 12. In the course of time, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers, and he and his friend, there it is, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father in law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat at the entrance of Venam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she had not been given to him in marriage. There's the issue. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by the friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute that was at Anam, at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral, and she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant and she said please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff then judah identified them and said she is more righteous than i since i did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again a lot of difficult things in that passage welcome to the lord's day <laughs> sometimes i wish i could just preach topically and not have to work my way through books of the bible But, you know, you and I read these, don't we, and wonder what in the world are they doing here? There's a lot of questions that aren't answered here. A lot of explanations that I would like or would have preferred that would have come in the text. But at least three things emerge from this text. God does not give up on Judah. Before our eyes, we will see Judah change and transform through the redeeming, intervening mercy of God. Secondly... The providence of God is amazing that he works through Tamar, an outsider, to save the family line of Judah when Judah had given up himself on his own family line. And then finally, God has something more far-reaching than the salvation of Judah. God is working to bring about his promise to Abraham that the whole earth would be blessed through him, that he would have an inheritance that would outnumber the stars and that that would all come through Christ, who would be the Savior of the world. Quickly, after a long time, Judah's wife dies. After a period of mourning, note, his mourning period is allowed to be up, but his wife is not, or Tamar's is not. But he goes up to a sheep-shearing festival. This would have been a party. Let down your hair, get drunk. You can find the same kind of party in 1 Samuel 25. It's when they all gather together, and they worship the gods, the, the gods of Canaanite, the Fertility gods that blessed their land and blessed their, blessed their sheep and all those kinds of things, and so this just would have been a, a, a pagan party. And just so happens that Tamar was told, "There's the providence of God. Just so happens, Tamar was told, "Your father-in-law's coming." And so she devises a plan because Judah had not kept his word. Disguising herself as a prostitute, she deceives Judah first getting proof of identify him identity from him and then sleeping with him and she got pregnant by him providence again once again judah doesn't know what's going on around him he didn't know why his sons were dying now he doesn't he's not aware that the woman that he slept with was actually his daughter-in-law there's no comment about the sexual morality of either judah or tamar in the text I'm not sure why, it simply is that God works out his plan even through the sinful actions of men and women. Just as Tamar was told about Judah's arrival at the sheep shearing festival, now we're told, now he's told of Tamar's pregnancy. Don't know how that word got out, but somehow the word got out. His response was sickening. Bring her out and let her be burned. Burned. There was a callousness in his heart. It's It's just the same as the boys when they had thrown Joseph into a pit. They sat down and ate. There's a callousness that can grow over the human heart. We see it in the world around us as evil gains a foothold in somebody's heart. There's a callousness that grows. Burning of a person was reserved for only the most heinous of sexual sins. Furthermore, he has no concern for the unborn child that is in her womb. What's going on here? I suspect in part that Judah is trapped in his own guilt. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of somebody else's eyes. Judah was trapped in the lie of self-righteousness like the Pharisees often were. Thank God I'm not like that person. And maybe Judah felt trapped by his promise to Tamar that he had offered his youngest son to marry her and he wanted out of that promise his first two sons had died so maybe he didn't want to lose his third but a solution that's burner on the way though to her death she produces the items that reveal who the father is and notice the language examine them whose are they it's the exact language that was used when the coat that was dipped in blood Joseph's coat was given to jacob examine this whose coat is it It's amazing, the word of God. I think it's at that point. It's a beautiful thing. At that point, something snapped in Judah's heart. After 19 years plus of running from God, the mercy of God catches up with him. Or rather, he catches up with the mercy of God. I don't know which it is. But it's the intervention of God's mercy that saves Tamar and that will start this transformation in Judah. As he says, she is righteous, not I. It's all of a sudden God just brought everything to bear in his heart and in his life. And he looked at this situation and it's like God just ripped open his heart and revealed his heart, the motive, the intention of his heart and said, look, he had become cold and callous. And we might wonder with a man like that, is there any hope with a woman like that? Is there any hope? That's the beauty of the Bible. As long as you have breath, there is hope. As long as you have breath, there is an opportunity for mercy. And so Judah begins to soften. He snaps for the good. He's confronted with his own failure, his own deception, and he owns up to his sin. The next time we hear of Judah, it will be in Genesis chapter 43 verse 1, as he begins to take responsibility now for bringing the family back together. God has truly worked a miracle in Judah's life and preserved the family line. Come to the final portion here in verse 27 to the end, and we find there a set of twins is born. It's the There's only two sets of twins mentioned in the Bible and the circumstances of their birth are almost identical. The younger one turns out ruling the older one. And through this birth of Perez, Judah's line, his family line is maintained and in fact you will find that Perez is in the descendant line of King David and in fact Perez is in the descendant line of King Jesus. And that Tamar herself is recorded in the genealogy of Jesus. How do we connect these dots then for us today in any sort of way that makes sense? Well, the the thing that I just want to echo in our hearts is this. God is a merciful and gracious God. Judah fails as a son of the covenant, and yet God mercifully provides twins, one of whom will be the one through whom his family line will be maintained. God's promise will not fail. Judah fails as a father to his sons. They are wicked, but God never fails as a father to him. Judah fails as a father-in-law deceiving Tamar, yet what he meant for good, or evil, God meant for good. God is rich in mercy, is he not, loved ones? And he who might consider himself the worst of sinners can be a recipient of God's redemptive grace. I find incredible hope here for any of you who may have children that have veered off path. Children who have left your home, turned their backs on you, turned their backs on the faith of a living God and said, I want nothing to do with that. Here is 20 years of rebellion. And yet God stepped in and redeemed one of his wayward children don't lose hope don't give up don't stop praying don't stop believing that a god of providence cannot lead your son or daughter or your grandchild back into the stream of god's redemptive mercy if you're one of those that have done that and you happen to be here today and you might be here All I want to say is, come home. Come home to Jesus. Leave your rebellion. Soften your heart. Come back to your heavenly father. And I think of Tamar. This random woman that Judah selected for his oldest son to be his wife. Likely a Canaanite woman. And she is now part of the family of God. That God in his mercy called her out of her darkness and brought her into the redemptive family of God, into the, 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 that, that, that fountain that's filled with blood. And Tamar is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. You might be here today and you might say, I have no connection with God. I have no connection with the family of God. In fact, I just feel like I am out of place here. You're not out of place for the mercy and grace of God. That God can call you and bring you into his amazing family, his inheritance in Abraham, if you would but trust him. Put your trust in Christ. Come into that flow of the cleansing blood of Jesus and become part of the promise of God to Abraham. It's incredible, the grace of God, is it not? The mercy of God that finds us out, that stops us in our paths, and brings us home. How amazing is that love? Somebody sent me this this morning, and I've tweaked it, because it fits so well. Here is the love of God in its sweetness, its fullness, its greatness, And it's faithfulness that passes all human comprehension. Where can we find the words to describe his matchless, his unparalleled love towards the children of men? It is so vast and boundless that as the swallow simply skims the water without diving into its depths, so all descriptive words merely touch the surface while immeasurable depths lie below. Well, might the poet say, Oh, love. Thou fathomless abyss. Oh, fall into the abyss of God's love today, would you not? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in all its honesty, and it does reflect our world, and it does reflect our lives. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't whitewash it. Your word opens us and lays us bare. And yet you don't leave us there. Your mercy finds us. Your blood cleanses us. Your call beckons us home. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for your great, deep, immense love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together one more song.